bi-weekly can't mean twice a week or twice a month. It can't work that I way. I don't understand how our society continues to work when we have these kind of loosey-goosey <laughs> definitions for stuff. But here we are. Journos, a stream of consciousness news podcast with Stephen Jackson and Brandon R. Reynolds. Ahoy! Oh, Stephen, you found me. I found you. Yeah. You're adrift. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm I'm a C, anyway. I uh, mm-hmm. was just getting into my third cider of the day, <laughs> and yet somehow you've tracked me down. I have. You've tried to. Uh, you've tried to what? Abscond? Is that the right place to use that? Or have you? Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I would say I've absconded a little bit. Yeah. I'm. I'm. <laughs> I'm out. I'm out. I. It, You're out. Yeah. I'm on a boat. The boat is gone fishing. Confusion. The one you can do a lot of things in the Caribbean. <laughs> the one thing they would like to control is is when you fish. Apparently, uh, yeah. Hey, remind me specifically. Where are you? What are you doing again? Sure. Yeah. Currently, we are anchored just off the tiny island of Half Moon Key. A key is a piece of land that is five miles or less, and an island is five miles or more. You know, in length. Whoa. There you go. I did not know yeah, that. Just just learned that today as I was eavesdropping wow. on somebody taking a tour that we didn't want to pay for. So I've actually stolen some information, which makes me okay. a pirate of the high yeah. seas. <laughs> You're an informational pirate. That's correct. Yeah. And now I've shared it with you. So is a key different than, is that any different than a K? Uh, it's the same. Those are just, it's the C-A-Y, but then like, I think... Key West is spelled like the a door key, and I think that's yeah. I just think that's just a mistranslation, Stephen. Okay, so you uh, and Janet, you're out on a cruise in the Caribbean. It's like a and what is it? It's like a it's like an improv cruise. What is it like? <laughs> explain to me. Well, I don't understand. I try. No, I'm saying this because I tried to explain to Laura what you where you were, what you were yeah. doing, and I was like, I think it's like a improv cruise like I, I i couldn't i couldn't give anyone the elevator pitch of what the heck you're doing right now so maybe you can actually tell me indeed i will try uh it is it is like the anemone which is a sea creature um hard to sometimes grab and hold because it changes shape uh-huh. it's called the joko cruise yeah. this is its 11th year it was started by a yeah. guy named jonathan colton who's a musician so he started this cruise uh a decade ago and originally just had some people come on and it's since grown and grown and grown um and he's added some partners in the guise of paul and storm they're a they're a musical duo and so the three of them plus another partner plan this thing and it's musicians it's comedians it's writers a lot of sci-fi okay a lot of uh comics And then, uh-huh. and then the fan base, which used to be called Sea Monkeys, but now I think they've retired that name because maybe somebody found it offensive. But they would wear fezes, and it's become a very like uh, a sort of delightful cult. It's a, there's a fandom, right? So you see people mm-hmm. at all hours of the day and night playing any one of a number of elaborate games. You know, like D and D, sure, no problem. But then there's like one that's called Baseball 2045, which is like. You know, put a baseball team together with cyborgs and, uh, nice. you know, and versions of Settlers of Catan where it's, you know, a crazy octagonal field and you're like figuring out whether to grow wheat or plutonium or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, it- and then, yeah, and then just all of these iterations of various fandoms, 
you know, there's a lot of Star Trek interest. Mm -hmm. There's also a lot of um, free expression, right? So uh, very big LGBT contingent. There's a drag troupe that's here that is performing. And, uh, you know, one night, Steve and I put on a dress and it looked great. Uh, Nice. Yeah. It's in some ways, it's sort of like a Comic-Con on the water. Yeah. But weirder it's like a, yeah it's like a nerd cruise yeah yeah in fact there's a the sci-fi writer john scalzi has been on many possibly all the cruises and he does what's called nerd prom where he just spins records one night yeah and everybody dances yeah to be clear i say that as a high compliment of to the to the cruise goers i think that's just great um it sounds so fun i'm glad that you are getting it doesn't even sound like r and r it sounds like you know you're going there to to do the work of being a interesting creative guy well yes i am in many ways a plus one yeah uh friend of the show janet varney uh gets invited to do performances of all kinds she does her podcast jv club yeah and and then sings Mm -hmm. and does some skits and sketches and things they have at night so anyway she's fairly busy Uh, and i I sort of i roam the ship like a wandering ship ghost you know oh it's amazing you leave Yeah, you lead a very remarkable life. Today on the show, we are talking actually about things lost at sea, uh, both recently and a long time ago. And some of those things um, have recently been recovered. Uh, So, Stephen, I just told you that I'm on a cruise and your first response was, (laughs) yes, let's talk about sunken ships. Let's talk about disaster at sea. (laughs) I mean, read the room, man. Read the room. Yeah. Well, you know, I was thinking actually on a ship full of comedians and actors and people and doing improv, the idea of something happening to your ship right now, I mean, at least everyone on board appreciates a good premise, you know? For sure. Yeah, absolutely. There'd like, be plenty of disaster <laughs> prepared gamers who could be like, we know how to build a new society for this. Yeah. They know what to do at the at the midpoint of act two <laughs> of your cruise. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. <laughs> Yeah. But you're right. I would be devastated if you went further adrift and we and this was the last time we ever talked. It would really mess me up. God. So I hope that doesn't happen. Did you hear, Brandon, a ship called the Felicity Ace recently caught fire uh, in the mid-Atlantic on February 16th? Do you remember this? you know what I'm talking about? I do. It's one of those stories that exist almost entirely as a single photo with a ship from far away and smoke coming out. And then a caption that said, this (laughs) thing has Porsches on it and it's on fire. Yeah. And then just a progression of sort of half-assed stories along those lines. Yes. I'm going to cut through that noise for you right now and just give you the straight poop on uh, what went down. So on the 16th, this uh, cargo ship carrying... Uh, Porsches, Bentleys, and Volkswagens. It's from Germany, was on the way to Rhode Island in the United States. It made it as far as the Azores, which are part of Portugal, and uh, caught fire. Uh, All 22 crew members had to be rescued. Everybody was fine. So then what happened, the the way that most people learned about this was via a viral tweet uh, from an account, Retro Tech Noir, Um, And the tweet says, breaking a giant cargo ship, the Felicity Ace is on fire in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. It's carrying a cargo of Porsche and VW automobiles. The crew safely abandoned ship in lifeboats. Under maritime law, the ship is now finders keepers. Um, So everybody, you know, started sharing it. I saw a lot of people, you know, sort of passing that thing around. So first of all, not even the meme captures the accurate story because there were also Bentleys aboard. 
But more importantly, it's bullshit. There's, uh, there's no such thing as finders keepers in that way. Um, and I'll walk you through it. So uh, in an NBC News story, um, a guy named James Mercante, uh, who's an admiralty partner for the law firm Ruben Fiorella, Friedman, and Mercante, said that there has to be intent for something to be abandoned. He continued, while the crew abandoned the ship, they abandoned to save themselves. They didn't abandon the ship or the cargo from a legal perspective. So basically, like, sure, the finder's keepers thing could be true to a certain extent if something is just sitting there. You know, it's, it's how you know people find treasure and stuff and they claim it. But with something like this, it's, <laughs> they didn't abandon the ship because they didn't want it anymore. They abandoned it to save their lives. So... Um, the truth is, is that the finders keepers thing here is total bullshit. But one way people could make money off this is from um, going out and actually helping save the vessel and its cargo. Uh, and that would be under the law of salvage. Uh, Mercante continued, the concept of salvage is that they save the owners from a total loss. They save the insurance company from paying out a total loss. So they should be rewarded for that. So you don't get to keep the stuff you save, but you know, ostensibly, if you were to save that cargo, the people who own the cargo should compensate you for, you know, preventing a total loss. That makes sense. I also think it's funny that we have internalized the finder's keepers rule. Like, we just assume the ocean is this lawless place where it's like, if you get off of it for a minute, it's mine. It's sort of like, you know, somebody <laughs> somebody loses their six-year-old at the mall, and it's like, you find this kid, you're like, oh, the kid's mine now. Awesome. You know, like, no, yeah. it, uh, no, you still want the kid. It's just, you know, the kid yeah. went into Hot Topic to look at the dirty T-shirts yeah. <laughs> or something. And that's what that's what happened. Yeah, it's interesting that the example you chose is another bit, uh, is another sort of abandoned landscape, right? The mall? Like, I, I don't know. I feel like maybe if you did find somebody still in a mall. <laughs> that's right. They were abandoned. I think that's the new rule. If if you're if you go into a mall, you could just take anything from any store. It, it is in many ways like the bottom of the ocean. That's right. There are orange Juliuses that are there that are just barnacle <laughs> encrusted, and the machines are yeah. still Stephen <laughs> pristine. Yeah. But listen, uh, you said a lot of people spread this one tweet around, right? Retro Tech Noir. Yeah. Did anyone look at the the particular Twitter feed? It's just a series of. Like 70s station wagons with the comment, would you drive cross-country in this? Or a side-by-side of Chuck Norris in the 80s. Yeah. And then, you know, and then, like, random things about, did Tina Fey die? He's a prolific tweeter, too. 36,000 tweets, this guy. Or girl. We don't know. Some of them loop. So it kind of makes me wonder if this is a news story that was propagated by bot. I think it's one of those perfect examples of a story exploiting a blind spot that is heretofore kind of a safe one. Like, you know, journalists go, oh, yeah, of course, the law of the sea. That seems like a thing. Let's spread this around. But, like, you know... Nobody's really motivated enough to be like, now hang on, is that true? Because the stakes are kind of yeah. low. And also, it's more fun to believe that you could go out there with your yeah. tugboat or your salvage vehicle or whatever and be like, I can get a new Carrera. Yeah. It's going to be awesome. That's, yeah. that's a better story. If you got time on your hands and access to a tugboat, you know where you're headed. It's the Azores. Oh, oh God damn it. You know what? I'm, as I'm looking at the feed for this retro tech noir guy yeah. on March 9th, he... Uh, he talked about Shackleton. He did? He posted about Shackleton, baby. 
Speaking of famous shipwrecks that were just unearthed. I know. Not unearthed, but... I know. Maybe maybe we shouldn't throw this guy under the bus too much because he just kind of set us up for, like, the most perfect transition into our next story ever. Well, let's hear it. Let's hear it happen, Stephen. I'd rather hear from you, honestly. Very good, Stephen. Yeah, for some say as many as 100 years, the question of what happened to the ship of Sir Ernest Henry Shackleton, which was called the Endurance, which sank... Uh, in the cold winter in an attempt to discover parts of the Antarctic uh, has been a long and enduring question, right? There have been explorations to find it, to figure out where it ended up. What happened was Shackleton, great explorer of the early 20th century, he was an Irish fellow and is well known because he had sailed around Antarctica. He had found some things. And most famously, um, in 1915, Stephen, during what was called the heroic age of Antarctic exploration, uh, he took a ship out. Uh, the ship got caught in ice, and over time it was okay. crushed, and then eventually sank. So he and his crew had to float on an ice floe for a period of time as the ice floe shrank and shrank and shrank until they finally ended up on Elephant Island, which was also extremely far away from anywhere and unoccupied. Yep. Also notably, it wasn't the whole crew. It was Shackleton and a few people. They made it to this other island, and then they went back and saved the rest of the ship, and not a single person died in this entire ordeal. That's right, yeah. It was kind of a progression, right? They were on a ship. The ship got stuck in the ice. Then they had to Mm -hmm. float around on an ice floe. Then they had to get lifeboats to go to this place, Elephant Island. Then a couple more of them including Shackleton, got in a boat, crossed the ocean during storms in this little boat, 720 nautical miles, Stephen, uh, landed at South Georgia Island, where there was a Norwegian whaling station. They had to cross that island because they landed on the wrong side of that, which meant climbing over a glacier and all this crazy stuff. Yeah, and an island, so as we learned earlier today, longer than five miles. It's not a, it, wasn't a, it wasn't elephant key. That's right. And they show up at the front door of these Norwegian whalers, who, again, are out in the middle of nowhere. So you can imagine, like, you're at the end of the earth, it's you and your buddies, and you hear a knock on the door, and you're like, we're not expecting anybody. And here are these three dudes who are like, yeah, we just came from the other side of the island. Do you have a sandwich for us? (laughs) So the ship is indelibly tied to the history of Antarctic exploration. Interesting detail about that, too, is that the ice slowly hardened around the ship, basically crushed it, and then it eventually sank to the bottom. So the ship sinks way down to the frickin' bottom of uh, of the ocean, like 10,000 feet below, okay? And uh, it's been sort of this almost mythical shipwreck for, for over a century. In an expedition, the Endurance 22, they found it. They found it just last week. And uh, they found it using drones, uh, an underwater vehicle called the Sabretooth, interestingly enough, made by Saab. And um, they were able to identify this wreck. The pictures of this, they're so beautiful and so kind of almost haunting because the ship it sank to the bottom of the ocean, but because of this area where it where it sank, there's no like uh, wood eating animals or bacteria or anything like that in that area, the Antarctic region. So the thing is like perfectly preserved. Like you can see the back of the ship with the name Endurance. It's like in perfect condition. 
and so that's what also makes this thing so cool. Um, people on the expedition are super jazzed up about it, um, especially a man on the expedition named Menson Bound. Uh, quote, I tell you, uh, you would have to be made of stone not to feel a bit squishy at the sight of that star in the name above. Uh, he said, you could see a portal that is Shackleton's cabin. At the moment, you really do feel the breath of the great man upon the back of your neck. Yeah, he's in love with a ghost. It's, uh, it's unrequited maritime love, which is much different than maritime law. That's right. It's, yeah, that's it's right. the law of maritime love. That's right. <laughs> so stupid. And you cannot salvage it, Stephen. You can't salvage it. No. It sits at the bottom of, the, of an icy ocean, perfectly preserved, yet never retrievable. And that part's actually true. The wreck itself is now a designated monument under the International Antarctic Treaty, and now it can't be disturbed in any way. That's right. Yeah, it's part of humanity's common heritage, Stephen. We talked about the Antarctic Treaty um, a while back when we were talking about asteroid mining and the idea of who owns space and all that stuff. And so yeah. this, too, becomes a part of that tradition. So there it is, kind of like a museum at the bottom of the ocean. If you can get there, tickets are free. I love that when you read this story, one of the weird meta experiences that you have, you know, if you read it on BBC, obviously BBC, very proud of their Ernest Shackleton. And so they have the big story, ship is found, and then because it's a website, they also have all of these related stories, which in this case are like a time capsule of coverage of people looking for this ship year after year after year and the stories of people trying to do things. So from August 2017, new map traces Shackleton's footsteps. February 2019, Shackleton sh ship search Shackleton ship search called off. Okay, let's just start, let's at least acknowledge the tongue twister. That's that's a crazy head. Yeah, indeed. Somebody should have been like, somebody's going to have to read that on a podcast someday, and they're going to hate this. <laughs> April 2020, the existential question, will anyone ever find Shackleton's lost ship? July 2021, just last year, renewed quest to find Shackleton's lost ship. And so then now here's, here's this new one, uh, which is not the end of the story, but certainly puts a pin in a lot of the questions of, you know, exploration. In other words, it's a big deal. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And yeah, even though they can't uh, bring anything up to the surface or disturb it, the technology that these saber tooths are equipped with are going to be able to map and visualize the ship and the area to an astonishing degree of accuracy. Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of all the hubbub when James Cameron was filming down at Titanic oh, yeah. and they were zipping around with the little automated subs and all of those things. It's pretty fascinating. Um, and to your point about it being in such well-preserved condition, I can tell you from experience that when I was in Antarctica, I went to visit the hut of another famous Antarctic explorer, Robert Falcon Scott. Yeah. He went from where what is now McMurdo Station to the South Pole. He arrived, but he got there just after a Norwegian guy named Roald Amundsen got there. Let's uh, back up a little bit. You don't get to just say when i was in antarctica as this like bullshit throwaway statement it's not like saying oh yeah i was at target last week and i saw the refills for my soda stream like it doesn't work that way i like know you pretty well and i know 
very little about this Antarctic journey you were on. Sure. Give me like the the elevator pitch of what what you did down there. I'm going to give you a pitch for something that I have finished so that even if you don't want anything to do with it, it's too late. I've already done it, Stephen. Okay. What happened? Okay. What happened was I got really interested in the Coast Guard's icebreaker program in about 2015. There were these icebreakers that were going up to the North Pole, that were going down to the South Pole. They were doing various things, exploration a little bit, and also just opening up sea lanes in the ice so that resupply ships could get to the American base at McMurdo. And I got interested in it because the United States has exactly one working heavy icebreaker, which is a classification of icebreaker that can like go through the thickest ice. And we have one, and it's over 45 years old, and it breaks down all the time. And the idea that we could ever get funding to build another one was sort of far-fetched. And everybody was wondering, how are we able to do this? And the ship, again, breaks down all the time. Um, so I got really interested in what it was like and reached out to the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard contracts with the National Science Foundation. I said, hey, I'm a journalist. I want to come on a trip with you. The next time you go down to Antarctica to break out the sea ice, I'd like to go with you. And the Coast Guard said, huh, sure, no problem. Unbelievable. And the National Science Foundation, which is a bunch of nerds, was like, um, hang on, yeah. there's going to be a lot of paperwork that you need to fill out. But to be clear, science nerds, not like the cool nerds that you're on a cruise with. Like real nerds. Actually, there may be some overlap there because there's a lot. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of, okay, lot of science know. nerds. I just wanted to be clear. Yeah. All right. So I sailed with the Polar Star. Coast Guard icebreaker uh, for about 54 days left from Hobart, Tasmania sailed around the Antarctic uh, was on the ship as it broke the ice for weeks and weeks on end we spent a few days at McMurdo Station uh, I went next door down the road a mile to the New Zealand Station which is called Scott Base which is adorable and has a gift shop and then eventually we got back on the ship sailed around some more and they dropped me off in Chile, yeah. where I got a flight out that night to fly to Fort Lauderdale to get on another boat the next day, which was the cruise ship for Joko Cruise in 2016. What? So there's a total full circle narrative there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was. Uh, oh my god. It was pretty tight. It was a pretty tight connection, Stephen. I won't lie to you. Wow. Wow. There's a gift shop. <laughs> there's a gift shop. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, all of all, out of every. I know that you said a lot of interesting things. I'm most fascinated by the existence of the gift shop at the end of the world. That's right. What was in the gift shop? Yeah. What, did you get anything? Did you get? Did you get anything for me? Uh, I did not get you anything. I got a T-shirt and another T-shirt, and then some patches that I've sewed on things over the years to be cool. Wow. Yeah. Um, that is cool. Yeah. You know, I I don't want to cast aspersions on the country of my birth. But I do think that the Kiwis have cooler merch down at the bottom of the world. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, but the important takeaway of all this is that I visited the hut of Robert Falcon Scott, who was the explorer who died. And he had basically brought the materials to make a hut. And this hut is still there, 100 plus years later. And it's mm -hmm. sort of like an Ikea thing, right? Because you can see that it's like... One wall is like insert wall A into roof B into this tab. Like you, you still see that printed on the wall. It was like a kit. And they just put this hut 
yeah. together. And outside of the hut is a dead seal that Scott's men had killed a hundred plus years ago and yet remained, Stephen. It had not decayed. because Preserved? Preserved, yeah. Whoa. Not that much bacteria down there, so it just sort of looks like a oh my slightly wrinkled dead seal. Again, from about 1912. Wow. So we've talked about the Outer Space Treaty on this show. We've, ta- we've now talked about the Antarctic Treaty on this show. And it's interesting how they're related, right? I mean, well, first of all, what the heck were all these people doing down there? Like, for real? And like, what were they kind of trying to accomplish? Well, it was a latter-day push of a certain type of national expansion, a certain type of imperialism, right? We had sort of conquered all the places in the world. And here was this part of the world that was so far away, that was so foreboding, that was so hard to get to, and so just resistant to the idea of human life, so hostile to the human body that no one could really claim it. We could sort of explore around it. Uh, We could see it. We could sort of get there, but you couldn't hang out very long. And no one really knew if there was anything there that was worth having. But eventually, all these countries had claimed everywhere else, so like, we might as well at least have a conversation about that. So over the years, you had countries like Chile, Argentina, Britain, Norway, the U.S. All these countries had sent explorers down there in ships and, you know, on skis, uh, eventually in airplanes. And revolving around all this was this question of, can we claim this as ours? And what would that look like? And eventually, after World War II, what it would look like was potentially a nuclear war that we were trying to avoid because Russia was thinking maybe it was going to stake a claim as well. So it was decided Mm -hmm. to implement this thing called the Antarctic Treaty, which essentially said no one can own this. Uh, It is part of the common heritage of mankind. You can do all the research you want, but that research should be shared. And so the endurance in Shackleton was a part of this legacy of exploration. Yeah. Ostensibly for the yeah. common good, but also let's not forget that it was part of an imperial expansion project from this country that was very good at imperialism. Some say the best. Yeah. What's that term? Our shared heritage? What is it? like? Yeah, I think the common heritage of humanity. Yeah, so it's funny. That same language also, so we've talked about the Outer Space Treaty, we've talked about the Antarctic Treaty. We've also talked about the treaty that is managed by the International Seabed Authority, which basically says the same thing about the bottom of the ocean, but then we found it interesting that people care about the bottom of the ocean now that you can start mining these polymetallic nodules. Um, so now elements of some of these like sovereign treaties or like case studies and international cooperation also are more and more coming into question. Uh, I cannot imagine that some of these treaties are going to be tested in the coming years, especially as climate change is melting, as we know, the polarized caps to the north and starting to open up new shipping routes that, uh, you know, heretofore have not existed. So I think um, there's a wait and see there to see how strong uh, the will is of humanity to protect these lofty ideals of our common shared uh, heritage or birthright or whatever we want to call it. And interestingly, Stephen, part of my interest in this icebreaker thing was that it was so funny that the U.S. has one heavy icebreaker, but then Russia has like 40, and some of them are nuclear. And so the idea that Congress people are pushing when they're trying to get funding for a new icebreaker, which, by the way, has now been funded and is in a construction process, was uh, we're going to have this new front open up when the Northwest Passage and so on starts to 
become available via the melting of yeah. the ice up there. So we need to have ships that can get through it and essentially protect our commercial transport vessels and that sort of thing. So we need these icebreakers to get us through there. Um, and again, we've only got one, yeah. and it breaks down all the time. So we don't have okay. much in the way of resources for that. <laughs> it's just an old Dodge down there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, kick the tires. Yeah. So it is kind of crazy to think that it was only about 100 years ago that we were on, like, sailboats coming into contact with this pristine, untouched wilderness, uh, you know, that is Antarctica, right? And then all of a sudden having to have these, like, unprecedented international treaties so that we didn't all go to war over this one piece of land, right? Yeah, and then 50 years later, we landed a man on the moon. So 100 years ago, sailboats exploring Antarctica. 50 years later... We land on the moon, and then 50 years after that, we're now finding the ship. The interesting connection there is, unlike all of these other Imperial projects, when we were trying to explore Antarctica, there weren't people already living there, so there wasn't the unfortunate colonization thing that happened. It didn't belong to anybody. And so in that sense, it Mm -hmm. was a different kind of Imperial project and is way more similar, in fact, to the space race to exploring the moon and eventually Mars and asteroids and so on and so forth, yeah. where there's not, as far as we know, life that we have to disturb yeah. or displace. Sure. So in this one way, it's like a success story for imperialism where you had no like pre-existing civilizations were there uncontacted that we like, you know, massacred because we're collectively awful as a human race. But in this case, it's like, sure. So it's uncontacted wilderness but now it's just going to be a race to extract value from that uncontacted wilderness. And, you know, ultimately there will be bloodshed over the, the rights to those resources, right? Or rather, I can't predict the future, but I, I'm imagining that it's not going to be just all hunky-dory once you realize that, like, there's trillions of dollars of oil or something locked up in the polar ice caps or somewhere in Antarctica, right? So in one way or another, all of this is going to lead to, you know, some kind of conflict. I I can't imagine that it won't. Well, that's what the Antarctic Treaty is supposed to prevent, right? We can't fight over stuff because we're all agreeing not to claim that territory. At some point, the Antarctic Treaty is going to be revised, and, you know, China's very interested in it. They're building bases like hotcakes. Um, And, you know, of course, we're ramping up what looks like potentially a new Cold War with Russia. Who yeah. knows how all that stuff's going to play out, right? Yeah, I know. And I sometimes my cynicism frightens me because it just comes right out. Like, I didn't plan on saying that. It's just, it's just this is the stuff that, like, sits just beneath the surface. And maybe a, a better way to sort of think and meditate on, you know, everything we've just talked about is this interesting vision that I had when I was thinking about the endurance. And in a weird way, it, it's similar to like this perfectly preserved footprint on the moon or that dead seal next to Scott's hut down there in Antarctica. I, I like to think of this image of the endurance sitting at the bottom of the ocean, right? Like I like, I love this idea that there's been this perfectly preserved vessel Uh, sort of impervious to all of the turmoil and melee that was the 20th century and the world we live in today. And it sort of quietly sort of sits at the bottom of the ocean. Um, And and I think about this almost time-lapse footage of the world changing all around it, but that that, uh, boat remaining static in the same, save for, you know, some anemones and some sea stars and other little cute little critters, you know, 10,000 feet below the surface of the ocean. And there's just something comforting uh, to me about that. 
maybe that's how I want to move forward with my day rather than like this cynical view of humanity, like just champing at the bit to kill each other over, you know, undiscovered resources. God, Stephen, I should hope so. You know, I was having a perfectly fine time before you <laughs> intruded on my trip with your gloom and doom. I, I was the endurance, Stephen. I was the beautiful oh, yes. thing covered in sea stars, half drunk on pina coladas, soon to be mostly drunk <laughs> on pina coladas. And uh, you got to get there. I know you came and disturbed my sovereignty with your imperialist ideas uh, of fussiness. I did. I'm like the icebreaker. Yes. Uh, yes. Well, I do hope that your uh, pina coladas are numerous and that you just kind of yes and yourself from starboard to port for the remainder of the day. Yeah. Thank you, Stephen. I promise that I will be perfectly preserved in some condition. I don't know what. Steven, this has been Journos at Sea. It has. Talk to you next time. Yeah. <laughs> I will talk to you next time as well. Journos is produced by Heather Eagle Ears Wilson. <laughs>